I'll be honest with you, I had to grapple a little bit this week with the question, what is a sermon? And say, well, Josh, I hope you would have figured it out by now, um, since those are a small part of your job here. Uh, What is a sermon? Uh, In a sense, a sermon is me standing up here and telling you what the Bible says. That, that's, that's what I want it to be. I, you know, y'all didn't come here to hear my opinion. At least I hope you didn't come here to hear my opinion. My opinion's not all that interesting. Uh, that's, no pastor's opinion is worth going to church over. Okay? Uh, the Bible is what's going, worth going to church over. Um, but when I say I've got to tell you, I stand up here and tell you what the Bible says... It's not merely just me getting up here and reading the words, right? Like if that was a sermon, any of you could preach a sermon to yourself standing in front of your mirror. You could open it up and you could read your Bible. There you go. And and by the way, you should be reading your Bible to yourself. I'm not telling you not to do that, but it's not a sermon when you do that. A sermon is when I don't just get up here and tell you what the Bible says I also get up here and expound what difference it ought to make. What should we do? How then should we live in light of it? Which brings me to Revelation chapter 16 and a bunch of plagues being poured out of a bunch of bowls. And I sat here and stared at my Bible and said... How do we answer the how then shall we live question in the face of sores, sea turning to blood, rivers turning to blood, the sun scorching people, and darkness and pain? How do I do that? So I did what I always do when I'm stuck, and I called another pastor. And I said, how do you do this? And he said, tell me when you find out. I said, okay. And so we just commenced to talking about it. And that conversation that I thought would last 10 minutes ended up lasting almost an hour and stuck in my head for the rest of the week and worked its way into this sermon prep to where this is not a sermon that I don't think I've ever prepped one quite like it. But I do think is faithful to the text. If I didn't think it was faithful to the text, I wouldn't stand up here and preach it. But I want us to see today that while God is not quick to judge, He is patient, He's merciful, and sometimes the judgment, there's actually always in the judgment of God a component of joy for His people because when wickedness is destroyed, that means His people don't have to experience it anymore. But for wickedness to be destroyed, sometimes the wicked get judged. And the Bible is very clear that God is a Father who does not enjoy judgment. So, I want us to talk this morning about the character of God and just how much He loves you and wants this passage to be of no concern to you because it will not be directed at you. Okay? 
So stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Revelation chapter 16, verses 1 through 11. That I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first one went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you've judged these things. For they've shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink, for it's their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Father, I pray that you would... Have mercy on this church and that those who don't know you here today would come to know you through your son, Jesus Christ, and thus not have to worry about any of this in the future. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see just how much you love us and what seems like an ironic passage for that. But this entire book is a love letter to us and you would not have given it to us if you didn't want us to avoid these judgments that are coming. Lord, we love you and I pray that you work in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, if you were here last Sunday, you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute, you just talked to us last week about all the joy that was in heaven when God was getting ready to judge, and now you're telling me you got a sermon titled, No Joy in Judgment. Yes, that is correct, because I'm looking at it from two different perspectives. Last week, we talked about the perspective of God's people enjoying the fact that the world was about to be purged of the wickedness that was in it so that they could live in a world that was the way God always intended it to be. That is joyful. Won't it be wonderful to live in a world one day where you don't have to worry about bad stuff happening? That'll be great. Where you don't have to worry about people doing bad things that hurt you and your kids and your family and your wives. and You don't have to worry about that one day. Won't that be great? Yes, there's reason to have joy for that. But from God's perspective, for that to happen, somebody's got to actually do the judging. And that would be Him. So I want us to look today at judgment from God's perspective. If we can do that. As much as He's revealed to us, I want us to do that. And the goal of this is to get you to the end of this and go, Wow, look at how much God loves us. Look at how much He doesn't want you to be judged. Look at the lengths to which He has gone to prevent that. So I want to take a passage about judgment and preach it as God's love. So first, I want us to see that God doesn't derive pleasure from judgment. So in chapter 16, verse 1, John says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So this is a a callback to chapter 15. John, who's writing the book of Revelation down as he's seeing this prophecy unfold before his eyes, tells us in chapter 15 that he sees seven angels come out of the temple 
carrying seven bowls. And in them are everything that is left of the wrath of God for earth. And that's when the celebration breaks out. That earth is finally about to be judged. It's all about to be over. And the world is about to be made new. And and then everything's going to be great. But shortly after these angels walk out of the temple, which is it's God's throne room. It's the... God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But this kind of functions as the seat of His power, we see in book. This is, this is where His throne kind of is. We see these angels walk out of the temple. And the very last thing that happens in chapter 15, you, you probably don't even have to flip your page in your Bible. In verse 8 of chapter 15, says, The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So the voice comes out of the temple, right? But nobody could go in the temple. So who does that mean the voice belongs to? It's got to be His. It's got to be His voice. Unless you want to argue for personified temple furniture. Don't laugh at me. The altar has spoken. Okay? But I don't think that's what's going on here. The logical conclusion is that the voice is God's. So several times in this book, judgment from heaven falls upon earth as crowds of people, angels, and living creatures stand before God. But this time, this time, He's by himself. Why? Why the difference? What is it that makes him clear everybody else out? Shut the door and just give an order that says do it. This is it. This is the last of his wrath on earth. This is the end. This is not wrath to turn the hearts of men and women to God. This is not wrath unto salvation. This is wrath unto final justice. And I believe it breaks God's heart. And I've got to go back to that conversation I had with my pastor friend because if... How many of y'all in here are parents? Most everybody in here. You got kids, you can't talk to somebody else for 10 or 15 minutes before they're going to come up in some way, shape, or form, can you? Maybe you can. I can't. Because <clears throat> there always seems to be something new. So I've, I've got to. And, I, and I'm a little self-conscious that sometimes I feel like I use my child for sermon illustrations too much. But I think... If y'all will let me get away with this one, I'll give y'all a break for a minute. Because this is probably the more important one. Because I think this is the idea behind the whole passage. My child and I, my daughter, we have a bedtime routine. It is considerably longer than, you know, Emily and I have different routines. That she asks me to do different things than she does Emily. And they're both great. But mine goes like this. We brush your teeth. Do all the necessary hygiene, health things, clean her up, make sure she's not going to bed nasty. We brush her teeth, change her diaper, put her PJs on. And we sit down, we read a book. She gets to pick the book. If she's good, sometimes she gets two. She gets to read the book. And then we pray. And then, because I'm a theology geek, we do the Apostles' Creed. She can get all the way through it. We do that. And then, 
we sing a song. She usually picks the song. Right now, it's Five Little Monkeys. That's, that's her song of choice. And then, Lord help me, she wants to get a comb and fix my hair because you'll have crazy. <laughs> and it hurts. I put a timer on my, my phone and tell her when it dings, my hair is fixed. Okay? And then we pick her up and it's time to get her in bed and she says, okay, we dance. And so then we dance. And she likes to waltz. She will actually look at you and say, we waltzing? Do one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So we, we do that. And then I say, give me a squeeze. Give me a kiss. I give you a kiss. Put you down. Cover you up. Pat you. Night, night. This all top to bottom takes around 25 minutes. I'm fine with that because I only get to do it so many times. I'm okay with that. A few months ago, I was getting ready for bed. And she slapped Emily. And then she hit me. And then she kicked. She refused to listen. And I looked at her and I said, Margaret, you're a sweet girl, but you're not behaving like one. I need you to stop. her, by the way. I don't ever do that to her. And I stopped and I said, Margaret, I'm looking forward to all of the good things I have planned for us tonight. But you are not going to disrespect my wife like that. And you are not going to disrespect me like that. This is your last warning. If you do it again, you're going to bed without any fun stuff. So I said, okay. And I turned out the light and I put her in the bed and I said, I love you. I briefly prayed for her salvation so that she could hear it. And then I walked out the room and I shut the door. The sounds that came out of that room. I was sitting in the living room like this. And I looked at Emily and I said, what do we do? And Emily said, you're doing it. Because if you go back in there now, she'll know you didn't mean it. And so I sat there in the living room hearing my daughter scream, Daddy, come back. Daddy, I want to read books. Daddy, I want to dance. Daddy, I want to fix your hair. Daddy, please. Daddy, no. Daddy, come back. Daddy. And I had to sit there not getting to do any of the great things with my daughter that I had planned to do that night. Now, any of you as parents, you've done something like that, haven't you? Maybe not exactly like that, but you've done something like that. 
Now, I want you to take that and blow it up to an infinite, eternal degree. That from the foundation of the world, God has been preparing heaven for His children. Eye has not seen nor has ear heard what God has prepared for those who love Him. He built earth in seven days. He's been working on what He's got for us for at least 2,000 years. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. If I leave you, I will go again to receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He intends for anyone who will call on Him to have a place in that world. He is looking forward to it. No one will be more overjoyed when you walk into His kingdom than Him because He has been waiting on you. So imagine... The cracking and splintering of the most beautiful heart in the universe when his children look at him and say, I want nothing to do with you. But I gave everything for you. I put a rainbow in the sky to let you know I'd never flood the earth and destroy you again. I scattered you at Babel instead of torching the earth. I made a covenant with Abraham to send him kids that all of you would be blessed by. I sent you prophets to let you know that I was still speaking to you. I was still watching you. I sent my son to live as an example for you and ultimately to shed his blood as the price for you. I gave you apostles to explain all the things that my son said that you didn't understand. And then... I sent you pastors. I sent you missionaries. I gave you the printing press so that the Bible is in more houses on planet earth than it's ever been before. And then I allowed this monstrosity called the internet to develop so that you can share that Bible with billions of people. You can hear my word wherever you want, whenever you want. You can have it on CDs. Y'all remember cassettes? Those existed. You can watch it on television. You can have it on satellite. You can hear me 24 hours a day calling you, come home, come home, come home. This is here for you. I love you. I've been preparing this for you. And you told me, get out. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And he pled and he pled and he pled and he begged and he begged and he begged. And finally, he had to walk out and close the door. Genesis 6, 5 and 7 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I have made them. 
And Ezekiel 33.11 says to them, say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? God does not want you to perish. You know, it upsets me when folks portray God as like some, some, he's almost like a judge in a sniper nest in heaven. And he's waiting on somebody down here to screw up so he can zap you with a lightning bolt as soon as you do. That's the way people portray God, that he's some angry, judgmental enforcer that lives in heaven. When the reality is he's more like a compassionate, caring, heartbroken father. That, that, that's more what he's like. And we, we, we respond to that with the negative and say, no, he's not like that. But then we do a bad job of saying, but he is like this. That it grieves God to see his kids totally and completely reject him, the only source of life. To reject everything that He has ever made for them. To choose to live apart from Him forever. It breaks His heart. That God does not have any pleasure in judgment. He's not up there cracking His knuckles waiting to let loose on folks who don't want Him. If God was excited about judgment, the world would be a very different place. If He was chomping at the bit to get folks as soon as possible, how many of us would even be here today if God was looking for the first opportunity to knock off people who disobeyed Him? The crowd would be very sparse. Dare I say, there would not be anybody here. Your pastor included. I don't want to preach down at you. I can't do that. I'm on the same level as the rest of you. God does not derive pleasure from judgment. What's going on in the temple when he fills it with smoke? I don't know. I'm not God. But I am a dad. And I know what it feels like when your kid doesn't want you in the room and you've got to turn around and shut the door and let them have what they want. I do know what that is. And if I had to guess, here I'll step out from behind the pulpit since I don't have it on the page. If I had to guess, I wouldn't be surprised to find tears on God's face inside that smoke-filled temple. I would not be shocked. Second, God's patient in unleashing judgment. So rather than, this is why I told you it's a little bit different, rather than go word by word through every verse of this, the the next section that we're covering, uh, I I want to just pick out some high points because you can can read, they're, they're very rapid fire. 
if you've noticed, it, if you've been with us through the series of Revelation thus far, you'll notice that the seals took a long time to get through. The trumpets took a long time to get through. And there are interludes and pauses and signs and symbols and other things happening in between. The bowls are not like that. They're very much bam, 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 bam. They're rapid fire. So, first I want us to look at this, this first bowl. It says, So the first went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So, <clears throat> does this seem fair? Do these plagues seem fair? Uh, some folks, you know, you read things and you're like, Wow, these are really harsh. This isn't really fair. Well, why not? Well, maybe it seems like a disproportionate response. I mean, all they did was take a little mark, right? That's all they did. Well, no. Remember what the mark is. The mark is an ultimate final declaration that you have completely disavowed God and you are completely on board with the beast. It is a point of no return. The objects of these judgments are those who have by their actions and very public outward choice said, I want nothing to do with this God. I am not His. He is not mine. We are not His people. We are His people. And point to the beast. They worship the beast. They want nothing to do with God. The objects of these judgments are those who have said, they've, they've effectively cursed God. Okay? So, first off, the objects of these judgments, these are not innocent bystanders. Okay? So don't, don't think that. Second, now this is interesting. The second bowl comes and turns the sea to blood and all the living creatures in the sea died. Um... Which, by the way, that by itself is catastrophic. If you sit there and think about that. Every living creature in the sea died. Okay? Second, or rather the third. A third angel pours out his bowl in the rivers and springs of water. Now this is interesting because if you go back to the first set of plagues in the Bible, you go back to Egypt... Um, which, by the way, this takes very much after the Exodus. If you go back and you read Exodus, you'll look at these two and go, wow, a lot of these plagues are very similar. <clears throat> yeah, Egypt prefigured this. If you thought Egypt was big, this is Egypt, but on a global scale. Okay? So, in Egypt, the Nile turned to blood. And folks had to dig for water away from the Nile. And that water was still fresh. In Revelation, not only do the rivers and streams turn to blood, but the sea also turns to blood as well. It is almost impossible to find fresh water at this point. And then you get this interesting speech by what we're told is the angel of the waters. Now the Bible doesn't tell us much about angels. People do. I can tell you what the Bible does tell us about angels. They're a different class of created being. They're spiritual in nature. They serve God, except for the ones that we call demons that are fallen angels. They chose to rebel with Satan. <clears throat> People do not become angels when we die. 
They are a different set of spiritual creatures with different tasks, and the Bible doesn't tell us much about them because the Bible is not a book about angels. Okay? It's, they're not its concern. The only time we see angels is when they interact with us because God has so designed them. But we get a neat little glimpse here that apparently some angels are tasked with overseeing parts of the natural world. And this one seems to be the angel of the waters. So, the angel that has been overseeing the waters on earth, I don't know if he's like the foreman and he's got subcontractor angels under him. I don't know if he he just kind of does it by himself. But he can do whatever God made him to do. I know that much. But... He's been kind of watching the waters, and God goes, I'll say God goes above his head. He doesn't have to. He's God. He does what he wants. But he essentially strips this angel's domain from him. There's no waters anymore, angel. They're all blood now. And this angel, rather than going, man, what am I going to do? He says, you're righteous, O Lord, the one who is and was and who is to be, because you've judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink for... Does anybody have a very unsettling phrase in your Bible that says, for they deserved it? You ever looked up at God and said, that's not fair? You want to know what fair looks like? That looks like fair. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Who are these angels trying to convince? Now me, when I'm sitting outside my daughter's bedroom, I'm sitting there with my head in my hands and my wife's trying to convince me that what I did was good. But God, the source of all that is good and righteous and holy, He doesn't need anybody to convince Him that it's good. He knows that what He's doing is righteous. Okay? He doesn't need these angels to convince Him. So, who are these angels convincing? Us. Because we look at this and we look at these plagues and we go, my goodness, they're huge. They actually destroy the world. And by the end of the fifth bowl, you look at it and you go, I can't really tell the difference between earth and what I imagine hell to look like. Is this fair? Well, God is righteous. Were you sure this isn't a bridge too far? What if these people were to repent? And the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him. Huh. Interesting. The sun is personified. Given to him. To scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. 
And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent. They're not coming back. They've decided. Their decision was final. And so God's judgment was final. But wait a minute. God's never responded this way before. He's never judged this way before. People have rejected Him before. Why specifically this point? Why would He do this then? That's the wrong question. The wrong question is why aren't you doing it now? You're right. People have rejected God before. They have. They have decided, I want nothing to do with Him. I don't want His kingdom. I don't want His word. I don't want His person. I don't want His presence. I just want Him to leave me alone. So why has God not unleashed this kind of wrath on the earth right now? Because He's Patient. The day has not yet come, but I know it will, because every child has probably done it and regretted it for one reason or the other. But the day is going to come when my daughter looks at me and says, I hate you. And I'm going to pick her up, I'm going to pack her bags, I'm going to throw her out the front door of that Stapleton Baptist Pastorium, and I'm going to say, well, then you can just take your little 12-year-old self, and you can get a job, and you can find somewhere to live, and you can never come back. I am no longer your father. That's not going to happen, is it? Why? Because I love her. And I know that a 12-year-old has no clue. (laughs) Neither generally does a 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 62. You know, we all say and do dumb things, don't we? Aren't you thankful that God's patient? And that God hadn't ever thrown you out, told you to pack your bag, you're done, I'm done with you, go find some other guy. Oh wait, there's not one. You're just hopeless now. See you at judgment. Aren't you glad that he hadn't done that? But see, here's the thing about patience. Patience by definition has a limit. If it does not have a limit, it's not patience, it's tolerance. And God does not tolerate sin. He is patient with sinners in order that they may have an opportunity to repent. But eventually... Time goes by and choices are made and lines are drawn that cannot be gone back over once they have been crossed. That line is crossed in this passage. 
And God has been patient up to this point. And that has always been His character. In Genesis 18, I won't read all of it. But Abraham begins this conversation with God. When God says, hey, I'm going to go check out Sodom and Gomorrah. Their wickedness has risen up before me. And I'm getting ready to wipe them off the map, Abram. What do you think about that? And he says, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God, just be fair about this. Be even-handed. I know it's a big city, but if you can find 50 righteous people in there, would you, would you spare that city? Because it wouldn't be fair for you to destroy those 50 righteous people because the rest of the city, God said, if I find 50, I won't, I won't do it. Well, what if I find, what if there are 45? I won't do it for 45. One more time. What, what, what if there are 30? I, I won't destroy it if I can find 30. One more time. What if there are 20? I won't destroy it for 20. Now I have truly endeavored to speak with the Lord. Let me speak one more time and then I will hold my peace. Let's say there are ten in the entire city. If there are ten righteous people, would you spare it? And God said, no, this is just silly. No, he didn't. He said, if I can find ten people there, I'll spare the whole city. Did Sodom and Gomorrah get spared? What did that mean? The line had been crossed. That eventually his patience runs out. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God say, well, that's not happening right now. i got time. Yeah, you do, right now. Now is the time you've got. Because you don't know how much time you actually have. I got a buddy. He was a groomsman in my wedding. His dad is the picture of health. His wife's a PE teacher. Okay? This guy runs. He works out. He plays sports. He does all kinds of things. His dad's in his early 50s. Okay? Get a, get a text on Christmas Eve. Massive heart attack. If it wouldn't have been for the deputy that got there before the ambulance that started doing CPR, he'd have been dead before he got to the hospital. Now this man knows Jesus. So, there, there are worse things than going to, going to heaven. Okay? There are worse things than that. But I say this that, oh, I got time. I'm, I'm young. I'm, I'm healthy. I'm, I'm, I'm not sick at any moment right now. I'm, I'm financially stable. I've got whatever. I've got all. The, 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 I'm fine. I've got time. You don't know that. God's patience is patience, not tolerance. And He is patient to give you a chance to repent and turn. Because it's not like you're turning to something horrible. 
heaven for you. That's what He wants you to turn to. Hey, I'm giving you a choice. You can pick between sickness and sin and death and hell and separation from me forever, or you can have life and love and peace and joy in heaven and eternity. Put them on the scale. See which one you think is better. You can have whichever one you want. I paid for this one, but if you want this one, it's on you. All you got to do is just turn to Jesus and you get all the good stuff. Why in the world would you choose something else? God is patient to give you time to come to that conclusion. But eventually time runs out. God has no joy in judgment. He doesn't derive pleasure from it. He's patient in judgment. But then finally, I want you to see at the close, God is not reluctant in unleashing judgment. And I'm doing something with this part of this sermon that I have never done in any sermon in my life. And it caused me a little bit of anxiety when I was preparing the sermon. But I'm going to do it anyway because I believe it's important. Normally, I've got little notes up here on my speaking notes. Y'all see it. It's color-coded because I'm not organized and I need help. I've got a little box that says exegesis. And what I do is I look at the text and I go, okay, are there any interesting words or phrases or is something going on in the language here that, that needs to be brought out? Under exegesis, I wrote, I cannot do exegesis on something that is not there. A pause. When these bowls start, they go. The door to the temple is shut. Appeals are not being heard. A slowdown is not happening. Any of y'all got... I read a silly article maybe like a year ago. Do, Do you know what one single chore causes more strife in married couples than any other chore? It's the dishes. Doing the dishes. That nobody wants to do the dishes. Ever. Because they're nasty. Just okay, maybe y'all are maybe y'all got it straight, but y'all, I did something about a dirty dish. I don't like it. I don't. And then they have this night of the longer you go, the worse it gets. And then you want to do it less. When you've got, maybe, and maybe for you it's not dishes. Okay, by the way, in our house, if a chore doesn't get done, it was probably assigned to me. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, but you've probably got that one chore that you have around your house that you just, when you imagine the new world that God is going to create, it just doesn't exist. It's just not there. <laughs> Life would be better without it. And you envision, you know, maybe it's a world without taking the trash. Maybe it's a world without emptying the litter box. Maybe it's a world without the dishes or something like that. That you get into the new creation and you you finish your dinner and you go to put it in the sink. And when you look down to put it in the sink, it's like, oh, this thing's clean. I can just put it back in the cabinet. You know, maybe that's it. But if you've got that chore that just hangs around your house and it doesn't get done, why does it not get done? 
You hate it. You don't want to do it. So as humans, we look at something that must be done and we dread it and we revert back to our basic childhood coping mechanism. (laughs) If I can't see it, it, it's not there. I don't see the dishes. They're not there. I don't have to do them. We're reluctant to do it because we don't want to do it. What do you not see in this passage? I can't exegete what's not there. Once it starts, there is no reluctance from God to follow through. And that is so unlike us that it was worthy of stopping and, and noticing. When you, and, and in fact... Peter even had to, I know I'm not off base here, because Peter had to address this. If you go to 2 Peter, and you go back to to chapter 3, that we just quoted on the previous point, he says, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Why is it that Peter brings that up? Well, because when you know a slacker, it's somebody who doesn't do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Patience has its limit, otherwise it's tolerance. When the limit is reached, God is perfect in all His attributes, is He not? So He never does anything too soon, and He never does anything too late. When he reaches that red line of his patience at some point in the future, to go one second beyond it would be beneath him. At that point, it's time for it to happen, and it will happen then, and he will not slack. Matthew 26 or 24, 36 through 44 says, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, this is exactly what Peter said in in 2 Peter 3, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and watching TV and getting ready for the Super Bowl and and doing all the the normal stuff until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and another left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. God is not going to show reluctance when the time comes. If you say, well, wait a minute, God, have mercy. God, have patience. He does. And you're sitting in the middle of it right now. His patience is now. His mercy is now. His grace is now. His forgiveness is now. Your hope, your opportunity, your time to be saved and to escape from all of these plagues is right now. 
So since God's not going to show reluctance then, I pray you won't show reluctance right now. God is calling you to say, well, how do I know if God wants me to be saved? You sitting here under this skinny southern preacher yelling at you, please be saved. I want you, God wants you to confess your sins, come to Christ and be forgiven and have a guarantee that heaven and all of its joys, namely Jesus himself, is yours. You can have that today and have nothing to fear from this. But I can give you no guarantee that you have tomorrow to make that same choice. So I'm going to pray. Mark and Joyce are going to lead us in a couple of verses of an invitation hymn. And if you want to give your life to Christ, and you've got a few different ways you can talk to me about that. You can come down the aisle and say, Preacher, I need to talk with you. We'll, we'll, we'll do it later when we've got more time. Maybe after church, maybe this afternoon. Maybe. <clears throat> I'm not going to have that whole conversation up here with you. I don't want to scare you and make you stand in front of everybody. If walking down the aisle freaks you out, then you can, you can fill out the guest card on the side of your bulletin. Put it in the offering plate when it comes by. If you're a guest, that's your gift to us. We're not asking for your money if you're a guest to us. Um, just follow. let me follow up with you and talk with you about knowing Jesus if you want that. Um, or if you miss both of those, catch me at the back door on the way out. But don't leave without responding to the Holy Spirit, okay? I'm going to pray. If you need to come, you come. Father, thank you so much for today. <clears throat> thank you for your grace and mercy and your patience that we're all